Let's turn to Romans 1 just for a moment. On behalf of Pam and I, I want to thank all of you for the many cards. I read all of them, believe it or not, and I'm astonished at the kindness and the encouragement that you've all given and for the generosity, which kind of is mind-boggling. We, we thank you for that. And I also thank all of our congregation because this year, thanks to your astonishing generosity, which to me is an expression of the generosity of our Lord Jesus Christ, who became poor that we might be rich. 353 toys were given to children this year in this area that normally probably would not have received one. And that's all due to the fact that you've realized that it is indeed more blessed to give than to receive. And our Lord Jesus Christ is the author of those words, and he is also the embodiment of them. For him, it was more blessed to give than to receive. And he gave himself for us. And he gave himself for our sins. And he gave himself to rescue us from this present evil age, as we've learned in Galatians 1.4. He gave himself up for me, Paul said. And that's why Paul could also say, I was crucified with Christ. That is when Christ was crucified. I was crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Or we would say, but I'm alive. And the life that I'm now living in this flesh, in this body of flesh, this mortal body, I'm living by the faithfulness of the Son of God who loved me, and gave himself over for me. I want to do this later, and I don't like to use the occasion of Christmas to do a word study, but this word is riveted in my mind, para didomi, in the Greek, and it's para plus didomi. Didomi means to give, and that's the word used in John 3.16. God loved the world in this way. He gave his only eternally begotten son. He gave him. And when we see God giving his son, we see the manifest expression of God's love. And God is, as 2 Corinthians 13, 11, God is the God of love and peace. He's not the God of wrath and vengeance. He is not a God of retributive justice. He is a God of unlimited generosity and kindness, beneficence, benevolence with a plan to lock up everyone in disobedience in order to show mercy upon all. This word paradidomy is the word used in Galatians 2.20. He loved me and gave himself over for me. This is the same word that's used in the Gospels for the betrayal of our Lord Jesus Christ by Judas and by his own countrymen, including Caiaphas the high priest that year, who handed him over to the Romans to be crucified. But Jesus said, it must be that the Son of Man is handed over. And the real meaning is that God handed him over and Christ handed him over, himself over, for us. One of the greatest discoveries in the Greek text of the New Testament is that the phrase pistis Christu, used so often in the Bible, does not indicate our faith in Christ, 
but Christ's own faithfulness. And this is one of the great discoveries we're making in our series, and I'm not deviating from our series today, Better Call Paul. This is one of the great discoveries we've been making as a Christological, Christocentric interpretation of faithfulness. And so we could say that we are saved by grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, through faithfulness, the faithfulness of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is God's righteousness in action, where God's righteousness, as defined in Romans 117, which is being apocalyptically revealed and unveiled in this age, is his saving act in Christ as the king, God the king. Nebuchadnezzar recognized him as the God of gods and as the king of all kings. And this king in Psalm 2 has a representative, a human representative, and that human representative is Christ himself, the man, Christ Jesus, who is also divine. The whole meaning of apocalyptic that we're studying in Paul is a revelation of God in Christ, meaning God is revealed by Christ as God and by Christ as man. So the righteousness of God is not his justice or even his rightness in that sense, but his saving act, the saving act of a king in rescuing his people. And as, as many of your cards reflected in Luke 2.10, the angel's announcement, don't fear, for I have good news for you that will bring joy to all people. How that today there is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now there is in the Synoptic Gospels what we call the narrative of Jesus. It's obvious. It's a historical narrative. In Matthew and in Luke, there is a relatively extensive narrative of Christ's birth, which is celebrated throughout the world today as Christmas. I didn't have to wait till recently to have the freedom to say Merry Christmas. I've been saying it pretty much every year. doesn't matter to me who's in the human rule of this country. So Merry Christmas. So Matthew and Luke, Matthew 117, it says all the generations from Abraham to David. He emphasizes David, the kingly messianic line. For 14 generations from Abraham to David. And from David, again, David becomes a pivot point, a linchpin in this genealogy, to the taking away to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the taking away to Babylon, to the coming of Christ, which means the from the exile to the end of the exile with the coming of Christ, 14 generations. And Matthew goes on to say, here is how the birth of Yeshua the Messiah took place. So her husband, Joseph, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her publicly, decided to divorce her secretly. But after he had considered these things, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, don't be afraid. That seems to be the message to everyone. To take Mary as your wife, because what has been conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. 
And you're going to call his name Yeshua because he will save his people from their sins. Ever since Marcion in the second century, there has been the idea that there's the God of the Old Testament who's a wrathful, vengeful, angry, retributive God. And then there's Jesus in the New Testament, the mild, compassionate, loving, unconditionally self-giving. And that distinction is a wrong distinction because it actually makes the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, his death for us, look like he's saving us from his father. Like the cross is the saving of people from God, this God of the Old Testament. But the, the contrary is true. Jesus said, if you've seen me, You've seen my father. And when you have lifted me up, you will know that I am he. When you see Jesus crucified, there's the picture of the self-giving father. Jesus Christ is everything that God the father is, except he's not the father. And so if you see him in all of his actions, all of his actions of compassion toward the needy, the sick, the demonized, that's the father. That's the father's heart. God is not a God of retributive justice as the false construal of Paul's gospel proclaims. And that's the radical difference. Jesus Christ didn't come to save us from his father. He came to save us from our sins. And that's a big difference. And when Paul has the opportunity to tell us what he came to rescue us from, he doesn't say eternal hell either. And if Paul is supposed to be the representative of all gospel preachers, why does he never mention hell in any of his epistles? He says Christ died to deliver us, rescue us literally, from this present evil age. He died to save us from a present arrangement of things, not a future eternal hell or a present eternal hell, but a present situation of things. We don't know what our situation is like apart from God without Christ in this world, as Ephesians 2, 11 and 12 says. We don't know what that status was until we're in Christ and look back. In Christ, we look back and we see that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet enemies, while we were yet at the height of hostility against that self-giving love, Christ died. God commends his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were yet actively in opposition, hamartolo is a very strong word, Christ died. He gave himself for us. And that's what Christmas is all about. Because Christmas is the initiation of God's rescue mission. The incarnation is the beginning. And all of Christ's life after that is extremely significant. Theology has tended to skip over his life in the flesh, emphasize his death at the expense of his life. But you see, his birth was the beginning of the rescue mission of God, an unconditional salvific rescue mission of the human race. It began with his incarnation. So Christmas is the initiation of God's rescue mission in the fullness of time 
You see, Paul has the Jesus narrative also, but he oftentimes mentions it explicitly, like Galatians 4.4, in the fullness of time, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem us. And he goes on. There's another phenomenal Jesus narrative in Paul. The most famous is probably Philippians 2, 5 through 11. So there is the Jesus narrative in Paul. And Paul uses this word, paradidomi, in fact, to summarize the entire rescue mission. Because Christ was born, Christ lived, and when he lived, he lived vicariously for you. Not only is his death vicarious for us, all his living was a faithful response to God for us. And so in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he says, not my will, he is speaking as all humanity there. The Son of Man is the single inclusive representative for all mankind. That's why I say, and I'll say it again and again, you don't make a decision for Jesus by which you are saved. Jesus made the decision for you. God made the decision for you, and Jesus agreed with it. And he represented all of us. So his whole living was a faithful obedience in his 12th year. He says to his mother, Shouldn't I have been in my father's house? Didn't you think you'd find me here doing my father's business in my father's house? He is a faithful representative for all of us. He lived vicariously for us. Unto you is born and for you today is born a savior. For you is born a savior, which is Messiah, Yahweh in the flesh. The Lord means Messiah Yahweh enfleshed. The narrative of the Gospels culminates with his crucifixion, his passion, his crucifixion, his death, his burial. And as Paul said, we received, paradidomi, we received as a tradition handed down to us, handed over to us, how that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, how that he was buried and on the third day rose again from the dead according to to the scriptures. The narrative is in Paul, but sometimes he triggers the narrative with a single word like faithfulness. Because the faithfulness signals or signifies the obedience of Jesus Christ all his life, all the days of his flesh, as Hebrews 5, 7 says, in which though he were a son, the divine son, He learned obedience through the things that he suffered. He demonstrated a certain kind of obedience. Now, I've learned one thing in my experience in Christ, one thing above all other things, and that is to be in his presence is better than life itself because to be in his presence is truly life. And to experience his presence is better than living the living we call life on this planet. And so it would be easy to let go of that living to experience the presence of the Lord. That's what it means to give up your life. It simply means that when you experience the presence of the Lord, you regard that as higher than life itself. 
So losing that living that we once called life is no big deal in the light of what we experience. Again, it's a retrospective thing. When God places us in Christ in, the, in our own apocalyptic moment, saves us by grace, and that itself is a metonymy. That's, that itself, that word grace, is a word that summarizes the entire birth, living, passion, dying, raising, ascending, and enthronement of Jesus Christ. It's all part of the saving mission. Everything about him is saving. His name is Yeshua. You will call his name Yahweh saves. Yeshua, Yehoshua, because he saves his people. He will save his people. Paul gets the point when he says, is God a God of the Jews only? Lots of people like to say that's what Luke 2.10, for all the people, meaning all the people of Israel. But Paul asked the question in Romans 3.30, is God the God of Israel only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles, the pagans? And he forces his interlocutor, the man he's arguing with, this false teacher, he forces this false teacher to say, Yes, of the Gentiles also. And that's the same time where Paul concludes that anyone is justified not by the works of the law, but by the faithfulness of Christ. For in it, the gospel, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Because in it, the righteousness of God, the saving act of the king for his people, Psalm 98, Psalm 97 in the LXX, the righteousness of God, God's saving act toward all people is being unveiled. This other guy comes along and says, no, the wrath of God is being unveiled. And he uses the word, believe it or not, this teacher, and it's not Paul speaking in 118 to 32, and I'll make that case again and again and again. I've made it twice, thrice now. I'll make it again and again. Paul is reproducing a part of this guy's gospel, which isn't a gospel. Same gospel he withstood in Galatians. He said, this isn't, doesn't deserve the name gospel because gospel means good news. What's good news about a gospel of human deserving, human merit, human decision, human faithfulness, human faith to get in, human faithfulness to stay in. What's good news about that? That's not good news. That's not the gospel. That's not any gospel. That is an anathema. Three times, this guy says, after saying the wrath of God, the vengeful wrath of God is being unveiled. And because certain people didn't acknowledge him and give him thanks for his creation, he paradidomy. He handed them over to their cravings and passions. That's God. It's your God. Not my God. And because they did this and did this, God gave them over to a reprobate mind, a mindlessness. God, God did that to them, see? And he says it again, Romans 1, 24, 26, 28. He gave them over to do these terrible things that shock fundamentalists all the time who have the wrong gospel and don't know the meaning of Christmas and say Merry Christmas and think now we've got a new freedom to say Merry Christmas, baloney. Merry Christmas, but then you say, and what does that mean? For one thing, I rarely use the word Merry as an adjective, M-E-R-R-Y. 
I do like that song, God Rest Ye Merry Gentlemen. But when I realized that all angels are named Harold, I was really shocked. But what does it mean? It's the beginning. It's the initiation of a divinely initiated rescue mission. You have no more to do with your deliverance than Joseph had anything to do with Christ's birth. That which is conceived in her is by the Holy Spirit. And God by his own will has begotten us. Wait, wait a minute. God by his own will has begotten us. To be a kind of first fruits of his universal creation. A kind of first fruits of his new creation. So the church is a very fortunate community of people because they simply know now in some degree through a glass darkly what all humanity will one know one day know completely and what they will know completely the church therefore and I'll say another thing I recognize and value the presence of Christ revealed in you when I'm together with this congregation more than I value my life itself. That's why I assemble, because there's something there that's greater than the life and the living we have. That's why I long to be with the Lord completely. I long to depart from this body, of course, and to be with him because it's far, far better to be with him. And there is a sense where we are still exiled from him. Now, Paul takes, there's no word right here in the entire Bible that describes the contrast between two Gospels better than this. Because when Paul gets talking again, he uses the word paradidomy, but he uses it for what God did to his son. He delivered him over. He gave him over over for our trespasses and raised him up. In fact, it's almost poetic because you could say delivered up, paradidomy. He delivered him up for our trespasses and raised him up for our justification. And justification has to be Change. That's a lousy word because if you understand God's righteousness as his delivering, rescuing act of humankind, which is what it is in Romans 1.17, then we have to understand that the verb dikaio from dikaiosune, the verb means to be graciously delivered with no deserving on the part of man. It's a divinely initiated, unconditional, total deliverance born of God's unlimited benevolence. Jesus didn't die to save us from an angry God. Contrary to Mr. Jonathan Edwards, one of our early revivalists in this country, who embodied a gospel that is still in all this Western culture. It is pandemic. It's being proclaimed in pulpits today. Sadly. He gave them over. Them, who? The heathen, the pagans gave them over. He made them do these things. Seems like that God's worse than the devil. No, God gave up his son for our sins. The wages of sin is death, 
So God sent his son to save us from the wages of sin, not from himself. And the gift of God is eternal life. Now, what we forgot about in, in Romans 6.23 is we forgot how we got to Romans 6.23, that all sinned in Romans 3.23 and come short of the glory of God. That all means everybody in Adam. And everybody sinned when Adam sinned, the first man Adam. Being justified, or again, dikaio means being delivered graciously. In fact, he even emphasizes it, being delivered by his grace, rooted in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Who is the, who are being justified or who are being delivered? But the all. For in Adam, all die. But in Christ, all will be made alive. So who's we in Romans 4.25? He delivered him up for us. And in Romans 8.32, he says, in case you didn't know who I'm talking about, he delivered him up for us all. How shall not God, who didn't spare his son but paradidomi, delivered him over on behalf of us all, how will he not now freely give us tapanta, everything, give us a new renewed universe? How will he not now give us everything, tapanta, Paul's word for the entire renewed universe? How will he not do that? Paul goes on to slam this teacher a little bit and says, who's the one who condemns? Who, who condemns? Who's the, got the right to say, God gave you over to that? Who condemns? It's Christ who died. It's God who justifies. That means he graciously delivers. That's what he does. That's, that's, he's God. That's what Jesus is. He saves that's God's last word. God has spoken to us in these last days definitively, finally, in his son. His son is Savior. The last word is Jesus, and we are those who benefit by his lifelong faithful obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion, wherefore God has also highly exalted him and given him a name above every other name, so that at the mere mention of his name, it is parousia, Every knee will genuflect willingly, gladly. Every tongue will proclaim with joy, ex homo legao, that Yahweh is Yeshua, resulting in the glory of God. Or, that's the same time in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty four when Jesus Christ, who rules, hands the kingdom over to his Father, and submits himself to the Father so that God will be all in all. And that's not subordinationism. That's not making Jesus a lesser God or a lesser member of the Trinity. That's Jesus Christ presenting himself, subjecting himself to the Father with all creation embodied in him, with all humankind embodied in him so that God will be all. In all. That's the final message we're after. That's the final message Paul preaches. And so he uses the word paradidomi in quite a different way. But again, the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, for I proclaim to you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Well, that means all of Israel. Yeah, sure. Just like 
Titus 2.11 means all male individuals. The grace of God has appeared. What is the, how did the grace of God appear? It appeared when Christ was born, when Christ lived vicariously a faithful obedience, which is our faithful obedience if we choose to participate in that faithfulness. For the righteousness of God, God's saving act in Christ is revealed from faithfulness, Christ's, to faithfulness, ours in Christ as his faithfulness continues in us. That's the gospel. Faith defined once in the scriptures, one time. Faith is, colon, the assurance of things hoped for, not the means of appropriating God's salvation. If God was going to define faith, you'd think if you're, if we're justified by our faith instead of Christ's faithfulness, he would have used the occasion in Hebrews 11.1, 1, the one time in all the scriptures where he defines faith, you'd think he'd define it as the means of appropriation, God's sal- appropriating God's salvation. But instead he says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. It's something that's given to us. After God seals us. I know that sounds strange, but that's the interpretation of Paul's gospel. We better call Paul to make sure that he clarifies all this for us. In the city of David, today, a Savior who is Messiah the Lord was born for you in the city of David. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, when he finally got his tongue in his head, loose in his head, because he had to shut up for nine months, because he had a family tradition that he was going to name his son after him, of course, a family tradition. And the angel said, now you're going to name him John, which word means the gift of God. You're going to, and he said, no, I'm not. And so the angel said, okay, shut up for nine months. And so he, when he finally opened his mouth, one of the things he said is, God has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant, David. Again, David emphasized here, the son of David. He could have said son of Adam. He could have said son of Abraham, but he said son of David. Because the emphasis on Christmas is the birth of a king. And the only way that a king, one of David's descendants, could be on the throne forever for the ages and ages to come, secula seculorum, as the Latin says, or aeonios tus aeonios, as the Greek says, for the ages of the ages, is if that descendant was resurrected from the dead and ascended and was enthroned. And incidentally, Scripture seems to say that you were crucified with Christ. You died with him. Your life is hid with Christ in God. You were buried with him, and you were raised with him. But Ephesians even goes further. In fact, it's Laodiceans. goes even further and says he has raised you up and seated us together in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. But it's because he was born in the city of David and he raised up a horn of salvation in the house of his servant David. It's the house of his servant David and the city of David because the Messiah, Jesus, is the seed or the promised descendant of David whose throne is for the ages and who is the son of man who receives an indestructible kingdom which he will one day hand over paradidomy to his father when he will have nullified every ruler 
that is every opposing rule, including the enmity that once existed between Jew and Gentile. He does not destroy Jew or Gentile. He destroys the enmity, the hostility, the antipathy between them. That's his enemies. We don't struggle against flesh and blood, blood and flesh. Our enemies aren't human enemies. Our enemies are principalities and powers, and believe me, When you make these advances in the gospel, instead of choose to remain traditional and die on the vine like a shriveled up piece of fruit, when you choose to make these advances, you will confront not human opposition, but a principality and power opposition because there is a desperation to hold on to this false construal of the gospel that Paul destroys in Romans and Galatians. Because it keeps people, it keeps the nations under the control of evil. And as we've read, Friedrich Nietzsche said, now that Darwin's theory has come out, he said in the 1870s, and because now there's no real cardinal or significant difference between man and an animal, then we can expect the rise of fascist brotherhoods like Nazism, communism, Islamic fascism, whatever you want to call it, and wars that have been that will be fought, he said, in the next generation that are worse than any wars that ever happened. And of course, World War One and World War Two pretty much encapsulated his predictions. But as we said before, he said for the twenty first century, this will mean the total eclipse of values and the total demoralization of Western culture. The gospel that this teacher proposes that Paul demolishes in Romans is a gospel that aids and abets this eclipse of values. And the gospel that I'm proclaiming to you, after unraveling it and seeing it in Paul as distinct from this false gospel, has the power not only to stop the eclipse, but to set it back and to put the hearers of this gospel into possession of transcendent values that even have the power to save a culture, a multi-generational salvation, a rescue mission in our time. So I, for one, don't want to just let the academy catch up to the church in the next 75 or 80 years. I'm saying now what is being discovered And it's worth it to me. House of David, city of David, because he's the seed of the promised. He's the promised seed of David. In the city of David for this king in whom God is and in whom God acts in a saving way toward his people is Christ. The righteousness of God is revealed from faithfulness to faithfulness. God's righteousness, his saving, because it's only right for a king to save his people, isn't it? What's, what does the president do? He vows to protect according to the Constitution. He wants to protect the Constitution. He wants to protect his people. He acts to deliver and protect his people. That's what a president does. It's the right thing for a president to do. What's the right thing for a king to do? Rescue his people when they're in need. Is human being, are human beings in need? Yeah. Is it desperate? Yes. Did God act? Yes. And it was only right that he would. 
And he acted in his human representative, who is also God, his son. God was in Christ, reconciling some of the elect to himself. No. The damnable limited atonement doctrine that's attributed to Calvin that Calvin didn't say anything about is an evil doctrine. And what it does to people is evil. How do I know if I'm one of the elect? Can I ever be righteous enough to be the elect? How can I ever demonstrate that I'm of the elect? I'm never seemingly to be good enough. It's like Charlie Brown in the first half of the episode. He's depressed till Linus gives him the gospel and he recalls it later. I'm an, I have a mixed emotion on Christmas because I love what it means, but I hate what we've done to it. And by we, I mean Western culture. And that's why I like Linus when he goes to get a Christmas tree and he sees this pink aluminum thing and he knocks on it and clangs. I think I've quoted him before. This really brings Christmas close to a person. Most of the songs, if I hear that song, it's really a cold outside or whatever it is, one more time. But I love the songs I heard today. I love them. My heart is drawn to them. My soul does feel its worth. I do want to come and adore him. Those, thong, those are the songs I could listen to all year long. But some of these inane things, well, never mind. That's not my business to do that. What does Paul say in Romans 1? Paul, an imperial slave of Jesus Christ, imperial because he's king, called apostle, set apart to the gospel of God, which he previously announced through his prophets in the sacred scriptures. The Old Testament isn't different from the new in the sense that it's a contrast. This gospel was announced in the prophets and the Torah about his son who was, what, born of the seed of David, he says. Right at the start, born of the seed of David, according to the flesh. And then he says, designated as the son of God with power by his resurrection from the dead by the spirit of sanctification. He enters into a breach of etiquette in Romans 1, a breach of epistolary etiquette. Instead of saying from Paul to the saints, he doesn't even get to the saints until 1-7 with his usual greeting. He breaches the etiquette because he's going up against a man that he anticipates to appear in Rome with his God as a retributive God of justice gospel, which totally marginalizes the death and the resurrection of God's son. It makes it over, puts it over here and says, yeah, that happened, but now you've got to deserve your salvation or you've got to appropriate justification by your faith. As if it's a contract instead of a covenant, a unilateral covenant between God and man. So he breaches the etiquette to get right to the point, just like he does in Galatians. He starts right off. Paul, an apostle, not from men, because that was the rumor. That was the attack. He's a, he was just got a commission from a committee. And, he did, and Paul says, I didn't get this from men. I didn't get this gospel from men. I got it from an apocalypse of Jesus Christ. A disclosure of God in Christ. And God in Christ means Christ reveals God as God. If you've seen me, you've seen my father. You've seen the father. If you see me crucified, you've seen the father's self-giving love. The father must be self-giving because he gave his self in his son. Not to save us from his wrath, 
but to save us from our sins, the consequences. The wages of sin is death, which Jesus died, so that the gift of God is eternal life. Well, what is the wages of sin? What would that be? Who would that be for? Every human being, I think, according to Romans 3.23 and what Paul's built up to. This is Romans Road. The wages of sin is death and all have sinned. So the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord, to who? To all humanity, if you figure it out, if you think it through. So in Paul, there is also the Jesus narrative. And it begins and ends in his epistles. It's absolutely phenomenal. John's gospel is more succinct about Christmas. He says, The eternal word who was with God and who always was God became flesh and tented among us. We beheld his glory, glory that can only be that of God's only begotten son, full of grace and truth. Because you see, the law came by Moses, and that's good. But the fulfillment of that law came in Jesus Christ, who is full of grace and truth, which means he is unilaterally the fulfiller of covenant fidelity. What God requires of humankind Christ fulfilled by his fidelity. So our participation in his fidelity is what our faith is. That's why Romans 6 speaks of Jesus Christ. And he that is died is freed from sin. Who is that? That's Christ who became sin. He died and was freed from sin. Freed from sin as all mankind. He died for all. And if one died for all, then all died when he died. And he that died, therefore, died as all, says Romans 6, 7. And so Paul says, then consider yourselves to be dead with him. And therefore, since we died with him, we believe that we will also live with him. In Romans 6, 8. It's after we are slam dunked into Christ by an apocalyptic act of grace, like Paul met him on the road to Damascus. We all have our road to Damascus, but it may not be as dramatic as Paul's. And Paul didn't say, Jesus didn't meet him and say, you know now, Paul, what you have to do is believe and I'll justify you as a result of your faith. No, he said, I'm Jesus whom you're persecuting. Why do you persecute me? Isn't it hard on you to do so? Isn't it hard for you to fight my irrevocable rescue mission, my plan? And so Paul ends up saying, what do you have me to do? There's, what's happened between the, he, he was saved, but he didn't, he didn't appropriate justification by his faith. He met his judge, and the judge transformed him to the good. That's why I love Jürgen Moltmann. The punishment, God's punishment for evildoers is transformation by grace. God's gospel is transformative. It's liberative. Justification isn't a forensic imputation of righteousness that you don't really have, but you get it as, a, as an imputation forensically. Justification is a gracious, liberating, transformative, and it justifies and sanctifies all in one. There is no distinction between justification and sanctification in God's gospel. You have been justified. You have been sanctified. You have been. And that's because God has made Christ to be both righteousness and holiness and wisdom and redemption for us. John's gospel is succinct. 
and I'm ready to close. I don't want to hold you too long, but in Paul, there's a Jesus narrative. It involves, and I'll get into this more this week, perhaps on Wednesday. It involves a twofold trajectory, a trajectory downward and a trajectory upward. The descent downward includes incarnation, includes what Hebrews 5, 7 calls the days of his flesh, includes his passion, his crucifixion, and his death. No man has ever ascended to heaven except for the Son of Man who descended first. And Jesus said, if you've had a problem with me descending from heaven, what are you going to do when you see me go back up there? And John six sixty two, there's really going to be an offense there. You know what the offense is? That Christ accomplished the rescue mission without the aid of any human deserving. And he, he descended and ascended. He came into this world infiltrated. He came out exfiltrating with human beings salvation. And that's offensive to people. And they are so desperate to hold on to this gospel. They come out of the cracks. They haven't been in the arena of pastoring, but they come out of the cracks to fight the gospel that pastors are discovering. And it's not blood and flesh we're fighting. It's a competing gospel, a competing gospel born of the adversary. Paul calls them ministers of Satan, ministers, helpers of the adversary. But what I want to say in closing is there were really two things I wanted to say, and people should say, say to me, why didn't you just say those two things and then shut up? Well, because I'm a long-winded pastor, that's why, and if you don't like it, that's tough. Okay, now, that, you know I say that in love. But Paul, here's the two things. One, the incarnation is the beginning of the giving of God's only eternally begotten son it's the beginning of the giving and it's the beginning of Christ's giving of himself to us a body you have prepared for me he says upon entering into this world a body you have prepared for me so that I can do your will O God and what is your will my will is to summarize everything in Christ God says What's this mystery we're hearing about in in Ephesians slash Laodiceans? What is this mystery? Does it begin with the union of Jew and Gentile and the enmity destroyed? No, that's that's one of the first indicators of it. But the mystery is the mystery of God's intent to summarize everything, to panta all things in Christ. And so that's what God's will is. So when Christ said, I came to do your will, He says, I came to make that a reality through giving myself for them, self-giving love. So the first thing is the incarnation is the beginning of the giving of God's only eternally begotten son and the beginning of his giving of himself for us. So under that should be a Roman numeral one under that a his whole life in the flesh was a vicarious obedience for us. Should I not be in my father's house? Your father and I have been searching for you for three days. Jesus could have said, well, that's going to happen again. But where, where did you think you'd find me? If you were searching three days, why didn't you think of the first place I'd be in my father's house? Which means I'm my father's steward. I'm, and it is required of a steward of a household. One thing is required of him. Faithfulness in First Corinthians four two, and Christ fulfilled the faithfulness in God's house, and He said, "The Son of Man must be crucified, etc." So, 
a faithfulness, he executed a faithfulness to the extent of death and an obedience which led to death and then to his exaltation. So Romans 1.17, my righteous one is Christ, God speaking. My righteous one shall live, that is by resurrection, because of his faithfulness. Because of his faithfulness to the extent of death, he will live by resurrection. Because he lived a life of faithfulness vicariously for us, that faithfulness is attributed to us, and it is what we can participate in. I live by the faithfulness of the Son of God that continues in me. And Paul goes on to say in 2 Corinthians 4.11, we are being delivered paradidomi over to death so that the life of Jesus might be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death keeps working in me, he says, that life may work in you. That's the pastor's motto. Death works in me, that life may work in you. That's the whole reason why the pastor lives, moves, and has his being as a pastor. Death works in me. And that's a marvelous and wonderful thing. So that life will be activated in you. You still want to be a pastor? Second Roman numeral. Jesus didn't die to save us from God, but from our sins. And to rescue us, not from eternal hell, but from the present evil age, which includes the false gospel of human deserving. (laughs) He died for us to deliver us from the false gospel of human deserving, which is the Kool-Aid we drink every day in Western culture, to put it starkly by quoting Douglas A. Campbell. I call him the other Campbell, Ronnie, because the first Campbell is Ronnie Campbell. Now, So Jesus didn't die to save us from God, but from our sins and to rescue us not from eternal hell, but from this presently evil condition, the condition of the present age, including the false gospel of human deserving. As a second part of this second Roman numeral, Jesus did not die to save us from a God of retributive justice. God does have a wrath. It's not toward man, but the sin that separates man from himself. That's where the wrath of God falls. Jesus was born and lived and died and rose again. He is the righteous one to bring us to God, as Peter said. He, the righteous one, died for us, the unrighteous ones, that he might bring us to God. He didn't die to save us from his father. He died to bring us to his father. And he begins to bring us to his father by showing him what his father is like. His father is like a crucified Messiah. His father is crucified love. He died the righteous one. And so if he's the righteous one in 1 Peter 3.18, if he's the righteous one in Acts 22. 15. If he's the righteous one in Acts 22, 8, I think it is somewhere in there. Forgive me, I'm old. But if he's the righteous one, then who's the righteous one in Romans 1, 17? My righteous one shall live by his faithfulness. That means he'll be resurrected because of his faithfulness unto death, his faithfulness or obedience unto death. 
And so by one man's disobedience, we were all made sinners and brought under condemnation so that by one man's obedience, that is to the extent of death by crucifixion, all would be justified or graciously delivered. It began at Christmas, the rescue mission. He died not to save us from God, but to bring us to God who is the God of love and peace in 2 Corinthians 13, 11, who made peace by the blood of the cross of the son of his love. He was born, Jesus was, and lived and died and arose and ascended and was enthroned. All of that is the one Christ event, the whole thing from Christmas to his enthronement. And from his enthronement to his parousia is the saving act of God, the unconditional rescue mission of God for mankind. And he's the God who is love and who sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins that we might live through him. Who's we? He died for he is the propitiation. He who? The righteous one, First John 2, 1, is the propitiation. And it runs a little counter to having to confess and acknowledge and rebound and all this stuff all the time, so you're sin conscious all the time. It says, I'm writing to you. I'm writing to you, John said in First John 2, 1, so that if anyone does sin, let him know that he has an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ the righteous one. Let him know when you sin, you should know that somebody's righteous for you. Somebody advocates for you, not condoning the sin, but advocating for you, the sinner, who is the propitiation for our sins, John says, but not our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. So if God is love and he sent his son to be the propitiation for us, who is us, if not the whole world? So the only thing that goes to hell, you see, Jesus doesn't love you all to hell. He loves you all to heaven. He loves you all to his father. The only thing that goes to hell is the limited atonement doctrine. Because that's where it belongs. What a fine way to end a Christmas message. Thank you. Thank you, Father. And from rambling and stammering lips, the gospel has been proclaimed today. For Jesus Christ, according to the scriptures, did die for our sins. Not to save us from an angry God but to bring us to the God of love and peace. We're so grateful, Father. And may this year be a year in which we truly appropriate the meaning of that love, the significance of that love, and in which we will truly understand what it means to lose our life and find it again, for the life that we find is so much more invaluable than the life that we lose. It's the life that we have in the Adamic ontology that we lose. And the life that we find is the one that's lived in the presence of God. In an existence by the spirit with God in us, both willing and doing. May this life work in us as a church. May this death work in us as a church so that life will work in our families, in our friends, in our generation. I ask this with confidence of its answer in Jesus name. Amen.